Welcome to the Sense of Soul podcast. We are your hosts, Shannon and Mandy. Grab your coffee, open your mind, heart, and soul. It's time to awaken. Today on Sense of Soul, we are super, super excited to have on Dr. Lisa Samet. She is a well-known health practitioner who has appeared on the Dr. Oz Show to promote homeopathy and naturopathic healing. She has an international-based practice in Montreal, specializing in homeopathy, emotional wellness, nutrition, and lifestyle optimization. When emotional issues are an obstacle to healing, Dr. Samet uses the emotional repatterning techniques presented in her new book to help patients uncover and rebalance the deep subconscious beliefs that often underlie their unhappiness. Her new book is called Emotional Repatterning, Healing Emotional Pain by Rewiring the Brain. I got to read it last night. It's amazing. The results have been nothing short of life-changing. She's written this book to broaden access to tools that she uses in her practice to help people change their perspectives, subconscious beliefs, and ultimately suffer less. And we are so excited to have her today. Welcome, Dr. Lisa Samet. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yes, yeah. and so you're busy. You you have a <laughs> monthly newsletter. You're a blogger. You do lectures. You're a presenter. Uh, you do webinars. You write books. I mean, what don't you do? <laughs> <laughs> well, you make it sound really good. <laughs> yeah, I'm busy. I mean, I have a full time practice, so that's that's what takes up the most of it. I have three grown kids, so that's easier. I'm not uh, you know kind of tending to them and driving them all over town like I used to be doing. So tell us, how did you come to be in this holistic field of medicine? Oh, that's a good question. Well, I mean, I worked for 10 years in Procter & Gamble, so I, I certainly started my career differently. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I was six years in Cincinnati and four years in Japan uh, working for them in marketing. And well, I mean, it was, uh, it was great on a number of levels, but I think at the end of the day, it was obvious to me that this did not speak to my soul. <laughs> Uh, you know, marketing a different flavor of shampoo or something like that. I just didn't feel like I was adding any value, really. And at the same time, I had started studying homeopathy a few years before I ended up quitting and was so enjoying kind of the practice of that, that I just realized I had to make a change. And I was in my early 30s and I, I just said, well, it's now or never. So I left, which was kind of hard. I was making a lot of money and it was, you know, kind of exciting and glamorous. I was traveling a lot and whatever, but I just thought I can't spend my life doing this. And I went back to naturopathic medical school and that's a four-year program. And I kind of like retrained my whole self. And then when I graduated, I moved to Montreal and I started a practice here and I've been in practice over 20 years. Amazing, actually, really has been very fulfilling. Wow. 20 years. You said around 30 years old, you were getting into this. Was it caused by, you know, something maybe that you were going through that you were actually using this practice first? Well, that's an interesting question. I mean, in a kind of a way, yes, I myself had gone to a homeopath in my late twenties. I mean, I didn't have a whole lot wrong with me. I had little, little stuff, whatever. Somebody had recommended this woman. I said, okay, whatever, I'll go. And, you know, she took this interview with two hours and then she gave me these little white pellets afterwards and said, oh, take this once a week. And I thought, okay, this is nuts. But I did it, <laughs> you know, because I don't know how much you know about homeopathy and it's not certainly the subject of our talk of our time together today, but it is energy medicine. So it's a little bit, you know, and not in the mainstream. And in any case, I mean, after a month, I went back to see her for the follow up and all my little boo boos were gone. And I said, oh, my God, what did you give me? This is crazy. 
And so we talked about it and then it was kind of like, wow, I just got hooked and I started studying it as a lay person and started, you know, reading books about it and practicing on my, my neighbors. And, you know, and then I was like, I have to go back to school and get trained in this. And then like so many other things, you know, one door opens and then, and then two more are there. And so after working for about 15 years exclusively doing homeopathy and, you know, kind of mainstream naturopathic medicine, more on, you know, the physical body and, and working with nutrition and, and uh, physical wellness, I became more interested in, you know, the, the suffering that we all have living here on planet Earth and mm -hmm. the difficulties that we're all confronted with and the fact that so many of us, myself included, don't have a lot of skills or tools to show up when things are hard. And I started educating myself more in how I could work with patients on the emotional level, not in, in mainstream therapy, because you know, having done that numerous times myself and talking to a lot of patients who had spent 10 years in therapy, mm -hmm. uh, we've all realized that it's super interesting to learn about how things got so messed up, but doesn't necessarily lead to enormous and profound change. And so I started studying a lot of, of techniques that help people, you know, essentially rewire the brain or, or get into their subconscious and their deep emotional world and make changes in a very real and fast sense, which to me is much more gratifying. And so after years of working with patients like this, I just felt like, wow, I really felt like I was on my ex, as they say, like, you know, just doing your, your exact right work. And this book that I've written has just kind of come out of that. It was just almost like it felt it had to be written. It wrote itself in a sense. Wow. I love that. Well, and you, you talk about in this book how your heart was just kind of blasted open with your own trauma, with your son got very ill and got cancer at one point. Yes. And that's kind of where you started um, doing some inner work on yourself and the rewiring of your own brain. Is that correct? Yeah. So in, well, I guess it's over six years now. So we have three kids and our youngest who was 10 wasn't feeling well. And, you know, we've always raised our kids with natural medicine. My husband does the same thing I do. So, you know, we thought, okay, maybe he needs iron or whatever. So I took him for blood work and there was some suspicious things on the blood work. And then we ended up obviously looking into that and it was just like the worst possible case. So we had leukemia and it was basically two years of chemotherapy. Uh, he had about 150 treatments of chemo, which is just a mind blowing amount in a two year period. I mean, bags and bags of orange and red and yellow, you know, chemicals that the nurses would deliver in these hazimat suits, like just so that they wouldn't get one drop on them. And you see this, these going into his veins by the bag full. It was, it was a nightmare for anyone, but I think as a naturopath who's, you know, looking into herbs and all these kind of natural things, you know, to see that it was, it was, it was destroying, but in any case, it's shortcut that, you know, he's alive and well, and he's almost 17 and he's in great shape. So, Aww. I mean, it all worked out, which is great news, but, you know, living through something that was so awful because he was near death, I think numerous times, uh, not so much from the cancer, but from the treatments, which were so, you know, they give you just enough to kill the cancer, but not enough to kill you. But, you know, you're on that knife edge for a long time. And, you know, when I think when we live through trauma and suffering, it just breaks us open, you know, any defenses, any barriers, any things that we've constructed to try to deal with life get just blown open. 
And, you know, I'm sure it affected every member of our family in different ways, but only speaking for myself, I really feel like a lot got just blown open and what was left there was just me and my heart. And, you know, that's not all bad. I think that I just really sunk down into my deepest self and started to engage uh, with, well, everybody I knew, but also with my, my, um, my patients on a, on a much more connected level. And that really propelled this work forward for me because I was able to really sense where people were coming from almost in an intuitive way. So when people were talking about where they were stuck or where they were unhappy or how they were suffering, I just had this deep kind of sense about what the real issue was. And it's never what it looks like, right? It always looks like it's something on the surface, my husband or my kid or my boss or my this or my that. And surely that's how we're living it, but really the problems are much, much deeper, right? They're in our, in our basic subconscious or in our underlying views or patterns and, and how we show up in the world. And unless we work at that level to try to change things, we're not really gonna make profound change. That was my understanding. Whew, that's, that's amazing. And I'm so glad that your son made it through and he's healthy. Thank you. I bet, I bet that kind of changed the entire family. Oh, yes. And not necessarily for the better. I mean, you know, when when a bomb gets dropped in a family, I think we all react differently and the dynamics change with everyone. And and fast forward all these years, I still think that those changes are still there. Some for the better. I think also some for the worse. Certain fractures happened that I think maybe won't ever really heal. Like, you know, Ben, when he was sick, he was really in a bubble and people in the family tried to show up to help him and he wanted no part of it. I mean, he was just angry and, and, and sick. And I think that that hurt my other kids who wanted to be there for him, but he didn't accept anyone's help. Not mine either. He wanted nothing. He wanted no one. He was not in a good mood. And so I think that that hurt them. And then, you know, of course we tried to cater to the kid and give him everything he wanted, like Nutella, which I had never bought in raising those kids ever, (laughs) never show up in my house. You know, like if Ben who weighed like 45 pounds at the worst of it, you know, as a 10 or 11 year old, he wanted Nutella, boy, I wouldn't drive fast enough to the store to get it for him because anything he was willing to eat was gonna be calories for him. And, you know, my other two who were not that old themselves, you know, early teens were like, well, how come he's getting Nutella and you never got that for us? Yeah. You know, and then, you know, (laughs) you know, unlimited iPad and all the other things where there were all these rules all got shot to hell. So the other ones, I guess they kind of understood it, but they really weren't old enough to get it. Like, well, why does he get this? And and then once he got well, it was hard to put in place those old rules again, because he was like, mm-hmm. well, you didn't say that like last month. And, you know, well, yeah. all of a sudden now are you making it like this? Now I'm addicted <laughs> to Nutella. That's it. So you have to buy it. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, yes, it, it, it shakes up all the patterns in the family and yeah. it's not, you know, necessarily that I can say, oh yeah, we're all so much closer now. Did you guys try like a more holistic approach with his cancer? No, okay. I mean, it, it was such a virulent cancer and it was so aggressive as leukemia tends to be, there was no space for that. Oh, we okay. did treat him all along with homeopathy and other things, but he was not very cooperative. I mean, I, I just think he was so angry that he just didn't want to take anything else, even if it was like the soft and the good stuff. He just didn't want to open his mouth for one more thing. 
And yeah, it, that was heartbreaking because I knew we had so much to offer adjunctively. And I have so many patients in my practice with cancer that I'm helping and here my yeah. own kid. It's so hard. I can't even imagine. I mean, when I worked at Children's Hospital and I would see these mothers just laying bedside, you know, and you can't help your own child. It's, you know, my heart goes out to you. It, I also remember one time when I was working at Children's Hospital, one of our students had cancer. And so we went to go visit her while she was getting a treatment. And she went from being like the kindest, sweetest little girl to like, we didn't even recognize her because the steroids were just changing her personality so much. They made her so angry and so defiant. And it was like, literally like a multiple personality. Yeah. It's a prednisone. And we had the same thing here. Yeah. you know, Ben was always kind of a tough kid. Like he, you know, he wasn't like one of these like super sweet, easygoing kids. He has as strong minded and all the rest. And maybe all that kind of energy helped him fight his way through it. But yeah, the prednisone just made like everything a hundred times worse because it's a high, it's all high, high dose stuff. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, it was, it was a shit show. (laughs) So speaking of the shit show though, it had to have probably given you a new perspective. Like for Shanna and I, we always tell our listeners, you know, we, we were on medication. We are not against medications. Right. Medication saved my life when I was in the hospital in ICU. So we love that we, we, we think that they're appropriate in times, but we also think that we're over-medicated. Our country mm-hmm. is very over. So where do you stand with that? Well, I completely agree with you. I mean, I think, you know, especially because if you look at the rates of people using antidepressant and anti-anxiety pills, I mean, they, they're astronomical and they just get bigger and bigger each year. You know, that's a testament to two things. First of all, uh, I don't think as a, as a culture, we have the skills and the tools to deal with uh, anything that's not basically a Walt Disney movie, which is, you know, most of our lives. And secondly, um, you know, once you're on these pharmaceutical drugs, it's really, really, really hard to get off. So, you know, plenty of people try to get off and they feel so bad that they get back on. So I think it's a problem. And yes, maybe these medicines have a place and a time in a short term, you know, I'm getting divorced, you know, I lost my job, whatever, you know, we're in a crisis and maybe for a few months, it would be a good thing, but people end up being on them for years, five, 10 years. Mm -hmm. And there's no encouragement to get off of them, actually. It's like, okay, you're doing well, let's not touch anything. And for me, this is just a lost opportunity because, you know, when we're suffering inside, isn't it an opportunity to try to kind of put the stuff on the table and look at what's there and and resolve some of the things? Uh, Because if we we use in just the medication and we're not doing that other work, it's like a Band-Aid, but you never really actually evolve. Yeah, you're not treating that root. You're just treating the symptom. And I remember when I was very little, I had anxiety, you know, like as my earliest memories, I've always had it. And I didn't know what it was. No one ever talked to me about it. And in fact, it wasn't until I was 18 years old that I actually told somebody about it. My heart was racing and I thought I was having a heart attack. I thought I had heart problems my whole life. Right, right. But no one ever talked to me about it. Nobody. In fact, in my family, it was nothing's wrong with you. You're fine. You know, and So I was on Paxil for a good seven years, Right, just was numbed the world and numbed to my children. Right, And, you know, I started to have these memory issues and just feeling very detached. I was in my thirties. I remember calling my doctor in like a, I was frightened. I was like, listen, I'll go through a whole day and I can't remember what I've done. 
Right. And I was like, something's happening. I think it might be the meds. I don't know. I was like, but I've been on it for so long. I would like to get off, but I want to go to therapy to figure out, you know, how to control it. Otherwise I have no tools. I've never been taught ever. In fact, I'm doing exactly what my parents did and what their parents did. I went and I started mindfulness classes, meditation. That's kind of where my journey ended up. But what's interesting is that I do see it in my kids. My youngest who has anxiety sometimes, you know, or whatever we call it, we call it energy on the chest. We don't even call it anxiety anymore. Right. But she knows how to breathe. She knows what it is. I've even heard her supporting her other little eight, nine-year-old friends. Good for you on a number of fronts. First of all, getting off the meds, because that's not always easy. And second of all, having the awareness that there are other ways that we can live with, right? It's it's about living with. It's not necessarily about uh, always solving everything. But, well, two points to that. One is um, that's something that I think that the work in this book, Emotional Repatterning, can offer people. Because... When I work with people who are anxious, and you know, there obviously is a hereditary piece there, as you tell it, not for everybody, but certainly in your case and for many people, you know, I'm always wondering to myself, well, what might you believe underneath that causes you to be anxious, right? Is it a belief that could be, let's call it an uh, upgraded? So when I know that somebody's anxious, right away for me, that means that there's a belief underneath that they are not safe or at least that that is something that I would wanna check with them, right? Because if I were to feel unsafe, which is certainly a very reasonable reaction to living on this planet, then of course I would be anxious. It's a natural reaction to a feeling of sense of being not safe. And so what would happen if with some of these anxious people, we actually dug a little deeper and we tried to explore what beliefs do I carry in my subconscious mind that would cause me to feel anxious? Because maybe anxiety is not actually the problem. Maybe that's a result of a problem. And so if that would be the case, what might I believe or what patterns of thinking are happening underneath that would support me being anxious. And, you know, the other thing that you said that really resonates with me is, you know, when I was working with people very intensively in the last few years on these things about anxiety and depression and, you know, being stuck and suffering, you know, it became obvious to me that, you know, we're all the same, you know, your problems are different than mine for sure. But if we boil it down, we're all struggling with the same basic things. And I actually call those thinking traps. And I, and in my book, there are eight thinking traps and each thinking trap is a chapter that I explore in detail, but having recognized that we're all kind of struggling with the same stuff at a certain point, I got really annoyed. And I thought, why didn't anybody teach us this stuff? I mean, why do I have to be at this point in my life and working with people also, you know, not, not 15 and not 20, How come we don't know this stuff? And then I, and I thought to myself, well, the people who raised us and the people who taught us don't know either. It was, like a sh- it was just like shocking. Yeah. My dad died at 65 years old. Part of it was because he needed a new heart, but that's because he had zero tools throughout his entire life. And that man had more anxiety than I've ever known anybody. Right. And I was just like, I don't want to do that. Right. And I don't want my children. So when you make a shift and you learn tools and you start teaching tools, can you change that genetic trait 
that has been passed down generation after generation. Well, a hundred percent. And Bruce Lipton is, you know, I don't know if you know him, but he, he is one of these, you know, fabulous people who's, who's all about, we are not our genes. Right. And a lot of the work I do comes out a lot of reading uh, of his work that I've done. And I absolutely believe that. I mean, we all have certain genetic weak links, if you will, but it takes the environment to trigger the genetics. And so if we work with the environment, we can keep those genes nice and quiet in the background. They're there, but they don't need to be activated and running, you know, 365 and, you know, 24 seven and all the rest, you know, can we show up differently? And I think that there's two things involved there. One is using tools that we consciously know that we consciously have to manage ourselves in those moments. And that can be breathing and that can be meditation and that can be tapping. And you might know emotional freedom techniques, super useful tapping, and it helps work on, you know, things coming up in the moment. But for me, like my big aha moment is that there's actually another whole piece of this, which is much more profound and much deeper and much longer lasting, which is taking a journey into the subconscious to find out what beliefs we have about ourselves and the world that actually caused the anxiety to begin with. Because if we work at it at that level, maybe we wouldn't be so anxious and we wouldn't need the techniques in the moment to help us manage because we would just simply be more calm, more peace, more self-accepting, more self-loving, knowing who we are, trusting life, trusting that we are good people who mean well, who, who have infinite worth and value, all those things which are often not there for many of us are kind of these fractures that have happened between us and ourselves over time. And if we don't heal those kind of deep wounds that half of us aren't even aware that are there, uh, it's gonna be easy to be anxious and depressed. Why aren't we aware that they're there? Because simply they're in our subconscious mind and it's subconscious, so we don't know what's in there, right? We can't access it because it's not the conscious mind. And there's a whole field of study now around the brain and the subconscious and repatterning the brain and relearning and the brain's neuroplasticity, right? The last yeah. 20 years has shown a huge evolution in the neuroscience of the brain. And so this work is really an adjunct to like these tools and these techniques, which is to try to get in there and do an upgrade on the software, if you will. Yeah. Can you explain what the, neuroplasticity research is showing these days that you talk well, it about it basically book. means that the, the the brain has an ability to learn and grow and change right i mean that might not be such an aha moment for you right now because you know you do this work and you're in, interested in these subjects so you you were probably already well versed in that but you know in science what they had understood is that the brain is very malleable when somebody's young because of course we're learning we're learning new things we're learning language we're learning skills but then kind of after 30 40 and certainly into 50s and 60s they kind of thought well the brain is the brain and that's that and now they've learned that that's not true at all the brain has a possibility to learn and change and grow and adapt and so that that opens the door to okay wow yeah i want some of that how do i do it Right. And so all these tools and techniques have sprung up over the last years, and I've trained myself in many of them. And what I do is come an amalgamation of of a lot of them. But it's basically the journey of trying to explore your subconscious and do a little upgrade there and, yeah. and kind of you know change your beliefs about who you are primarily. You know, my work is more about making things well within ourselves. 
not so much dealing with him and her and this and that and all those things out there. I like to say it's never about out there. It's yeah. always about in here. And, you yeah. know, people don't like to hear that because they want to say, well, he did this and she makes me feel like that. And my boss didn't do this. And, you know, whatever. It's so much easier if we blame other people and these people suck and, you know, and I'm the victim of all that. But I don't like that approach because, you know, we can't change anyone. And we, you know, often can change situations. And so if it's all about something out there and I can't change anything out there, well, I'm stuck. So yeah. what I like to do is make it about me. Like, okay, what is my role in this dynamic? And how do I own as much of these dynamics as possible? Not for self-blame, because I don't think that's interesting at all, but more that if I take responsibility for what's mine in any dynamic, well, then I'm empowered because then I can change myself and then I can show up better and differently. And then guess what? All those things happening out there get different and get better because I'm yeah. different and better, right? Yeah. So a lot of these uh, thinking traps that we fall into, you believe a lot of that is how we perceived things when we were a child. Yes. I know that a lot of times when I bring up this... Um, you know, inner child work, people are like, ah, oh, so sick of hearing about the child, you know, going back to your childhood and having to look at things that everything happens when you're a child. Why do they always have to blame you when you're a child? You teach us to be present, yet you're making us go to the past and, and dig into the past. Like these are things that I hear, <laughs> right? So what would you say to that? I have a great answer to that. I completely agree with everybody's argument that they just said to you. I really honestly feel the past is gone and it's not worth a whole lot of time. It's done. We can do nothing about it. We all got screwed. We all didn't get the parents we wanted. We didn't get this. We didn't have that. Yes, yes, and yes. It's a fact. Now let's turn that page, do the upgrades and move on with the rest of our life. So I'm, I totally agree. I don't want to drag anybody into anything and what'd your dad do and what'd your mom do and whatnot. doesn't matter. What the value is, though, is just simply recognizing that the relationship that we have with ourselves often got damaged when we were in childhood. It's not a matter of spending a lot of time there. It's just a matter of acknowledging because people say, for example, I work with somebody and we discover that they don't love themselves, which, believe me, is more common than it's than we'd like to know. And, you know, when someone recognizes from doing this deeper work in their subconscious that they don't love themselves, they're like, well, how, of course I love myself. I mean, how did, how did that happen that I don't believe I love myself in my subconscious? I said, well, yes, you might love yourself in your conscious mind. By the way, the conscious mind is aware of 5% of your brain's activity. Your subconscious is responsible for 95. So if you love yourself in your 5%, yay, but it's going to do basically nothing for you, right? It's yeah. how we feel underneath in our subconscious that's what's driving the boat here, not what you think you, you believe in your conscious mind, right? Okay. So it's not about saying, yes, this comes from your childhood in order to go explore all of that. It's about just understanding that these things, it's kind of not your fault. You know, it's not like you yesterday made this terrible decision. You weren't going to love yourself anymore. And now you're, you're dealing with that today. No, a lot of these kind of miswired beliefs or these thinking traps or these wounds come from our childhood. Why is that? It's just simply to understand when you're five and your father's screaming at you, 
you know, you don't have the wherewithal to say, wow, that man needs therapy. You know, he needs to go and like learn how to manage his anger. No, that's not what we think. We think we're bad because those big people are like, they look like gods to us, right? They're, they're totally responsible for raising us and we have put ourselves in their hands. And I mean, it, it's not possible to think at five or seven or three or whatever, wow, they've got problems. They better work on themselves, right? When they're angry or upset or fighting or yelling at us, we internalize that. And we end up thinking for the most part that we're bad, right? If a teacher says, oh, well, you're, you know, this is the third time you've done that homework and it's horrible. You're terrible in math and you're never going to, you know, learn math or things like that, which I think more teachers now are more aware to be, you know, mindful of how they speak. But, you know, I've had plenty of patients who are told various things by teachers, by parents. And at a young age, we believe those things because we don't have the wherewithal to say, oh my God, that's about them, not about me. We learn that later, but the subconscious beliefs are already there. And so mm -hmm. we can't really do much about them except take that journey inside to that place where they are find out what they are and, and do a, a process which upgrades them, changing, for example, the beliefs that I don't love myself to beliefs that I do love myself. And that's actually pretty quick and easy because it's only a belief. It's not a fact. Right. Yeah. It's amazing what you can discover if you pay attention of, mm -hmm. you know, what's in the subconscious mind from, you know, your childhood. I mean, I discovered something I did not know that was there. I did not consciously agree with it. Yeah. And I discovered this by one of those tests that they have, a Harvard bias test. Okay. And I would do it. And I was like, wait a second, why am I getting this result? And I would try it and try it. And I kept getting the same result. I even knew what I was doing. Right. What I thought exactly. there was nothing I could do. There was nothing I could do. But I was really messed up over it. I was upset. Right. I mean, I live in Colorado. My, all my friends are of different colors and races. I, it's not a thing, right. but somewhere subconsciously, what I had learned as a child, it must have been. So I called my friend who he's totally into neuroscience and I'm like, help me what's happening. He's like, well, think about it. You lived in Louisiana until you were seven. I mean, sure. You know, consciously not to be that way, right. but you know, these things are in your subconscious mind. So I sat with it. I sat with it. I did meditations. I've done a lot of ancestry work. I mean, I'm 20% black myself. And so going through all that, I do not get that high result anymore. And I'm like, I'm proof that you can create this other brighter light. Right. Uh, but what, what a great example that is. I, I never would have right. thought to think about it that way, but that's the perfect example we take in certain information and we form beliefs from a, from a very young mind where we don't have the context or the perspective to reason with anything. And those things stay in there. I mean, in the craziest way, right? Because simply we don't really know how to access that. That's the interesting thing about, well, being alive now and, and all that's been discovered about this and all the work that's been done and, and has really culminated for me in the writing of this book, because I teach a technique in there that, I mean, honestly, couldn't be easier. And you can change a belief, upgrade a belief, if you will, in like five minutes, you know, by rewiring the brain into believing something better. You know, it almost sounds ridiculous, but haven't you found in your life that 
some of the most profound things or some of the simplest things. I mean, you know, the big things are not complicated. We tend to complicate stuff, but the big things are actually basic and simple. And, and this is also very, very easy and simple. You just simply teach your brain to believe something new, something better. Yeah. And that better and belief mean, replaces the old one. I was pissed. Yeah, I did yeah. not agree <laughs> with that. You know, I had this right. struggle against myself. And I yes. was, my heart was like, absolutely not. How is that in me? Right. That's everything I'm against. And right. so I was like, how can something be in me like that? Like, it was very disturbing to me. Then a real bigger light went off and said, how many other things? Yeah, right? yeah, well, that's it. But, you know, Are to the earlier point, you know, we don't have to go back and explore your childhood in order to fix this. I mean, I don't have to say to you, so tell me, you know, what might have happened when you were five in Louisiana that gave you this bad impression or this bad belief? Who cares? I don't care. You don't care. The point is, you know what? There's something in there that's not working for you. And it's a conflict in you. And whether or not we ever figure out how it got in there, why it got in there or not, doesn't matter. Let's turn the page on that stuff. We know where we are today. You know that this is not what you want for your future. It doesn't serve you. It doesn't help anybody or anything. Let's change it. Poof. Let's replace it with something you want to believe. Right. Yeah. And then if we can just simply do that, we go forward with the new belief. Done. I was thinking about how I have programmed myself to believe that my feelings are not valid. So that's mm -hmm. what I, my epiphany that I've had lately. But then I even started trying to go to who I could blame for that. So I was looking down like, oh, was it because my dad was never emotionally available? Was it because this? Okay, that doesn't matter. What you're saying is it doesn't matter. It's interesting. If you know, okay, well, okay, that answers that question. But does it change anything? Does it help you yeah. fix it? Does it help you solve it? No, nothing. No. Yeah. I love that because that's not going to change anything. So now let's focus on what we can do now and how we can change that. I have to say that, first of all, Shanna and I preach, preach, preach. And we loved that it was in your book that it says this is where it starts. And the first one was self-love. So we are huge on teaching self-love. And then let's talk about the other ones. There was acceptance, responsibility, stories, uh, co-creating. What am I missing? Um, regrets, gifts, and death. And death. Okay. So responsibility, I, I had a little hiccup and I wanted to talk to you about, um, and I, I know the answer, but I think, our <laughs> listener, I think, our, I think go our ahead, listener, do the hiccup. <laughs> okay. But I think our listeners would be like, what, how does looking at your part in things bring people liberation? Because most people would be like, the last word they think of is being liberated by looking at their role and their part in things. Can you explain right. that? Yeah, because that, that's the irony because none of us do it that way, right? It's all about how the other one hurt us, how the other one screwed up, how the other one's not good, not nice, not this, not that. And you know, as long as we're in that dynamic, we will fix nothing because we can't change any of them. Believe me, I've spent a good part of my life trying to fix and change people. I finally got it and maybe I'm a little bit in the slow group <laughs> that it doesn't work. <laughs> So, you know, finally, when you've exhausted yourself doing that and you've gotten nowhere fast, you realize that, you know what, all I can change is me. And thank God, because I don't have enough power and energy to, to do anything but me. But right now I can't show up and change or fix anybody else. I can just work on me. And that's a full time job. So 
what we talk about when we say take responsibility for your role, and I mentioned it earlier, when I take responsibility for my role, well, guess what? Then I get to fix things. Then I get to change things because then I'm responsible for my piece. If I can upgrade my piece, if I can do my piece a little better, well, of course, the dynamic between me and everybody then is going to change. So if I love myself, if I accept myself exactly as I am, if I know my worth and value, if I believe in myself, if I feel safe, if I have done all the work on making sure that those basic and foundational beliefs are in place and I am well within myself, truly well within me, how can it not go better on the outside? I mean, it has to. So, so grabbing my responsibility for everything helps me change everything. It's not a matter of blame and it's not a matter of shame. Like, oh, I screwed up here, but it's too painful and horrible for me to admit to that because then I'm going to be embarrassed and ashamed about that. So I have to then point my finger and, you know, point out where everybody else is screwed up. So to protect myself from feeling bad. Well, yes, uh, we all kind of do it that way, but how well is it working for you? Right. You know, here in America, anyways, I'm not sure how it is in Canada, our medical records have many of these things as permanent diagnoses. Mm. I mean, every time I go, I know I, if I want to, I can get this med or this med. I mean, at one point, you know, Mandy and I both were diagnosed with fibromyalgia. I have a consistent record of anxiety, which I think at the last time I looked at it said severe. So I can get medications at any time, right? right? Just how you said medications are good, but like temporary, right? We have, these are temporary conditions in our lives, right? Why are they, per- you know, I defined myself because I felt it was a permanent diagnosis of mine, right? But then now looking back and saying, well, everybody has that. Just like you yes. said, we're all the same. We're all, you know, we all have, you know, things and we're different how we react. Yeah. I mean, one, one of the things that you say, which is, you know, about these diagnoses and, you know, you get labeled and whatever, you know, this is the exact opposite of empowerment, right? Because so many people with these diagnoses and labels, it's like, well, what do you expect? You know, I have this or I have that. No wonder I did that. No wonder I feel this way. You know, yeah. it's just par for the course, right? I mean, if everybody, if I have that label, then these behaviors, these feelings, these everything is exactly what comes with. So then there's no way out of that loop, I think. True. Right. Yeah. It's like, yeah. okay, yes, I have, I have a tendency here or I have like a weak link here. Yes. But what am I able to do to grow, to evolve and to learn? We're not meant to stay stuck here. Right. Many of us are stuck. Right. And that equals misery and suffering, which is, you know, kind of the, 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 the push that I had to, to write the book, which is, wow, if I had these insights working with so many hundreds of people, you know, would this liberate anyone from this feeling of suffering and stuckness if they understood some of what I've come to understand? You know, when you work with people on an intimate level, it's really a gift because you really get to see like the inside of humanity (laughs) and you really get to see like, wow, we're all stuck. We're all suffering. And, you know, why is that? You know, I, 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 I lay it out in the book and I don't know if it's for everyone, but certainly my view of things is that, you know, we come to earth to learn. We are imperfect. We come here to evolve and to grow. That's the essence of it, right? I kind of make the analogy to earth being like a school. 
And, you know, if we're not challenged here, how much are we going to learn and grow? You know, when you're in school and you take a math class, well, if they just taught you one plus one, would you learn anything? No. Would you, would you struggle with anything? No. So how much learning are you going to do at the end of the semester if all they've been teaching you is one plus one? No learning at all. You know, fortunately or unfortunately, humans learn through difficulty, through mm -hmm. challenge. And yeah. so when we are challenged here, we all think, well, that's not right. Why is this happening to me? You know, I shouldn't have had to go through that. But unless we're challenged, we're not going to evolve, right? Yeah. Because we're not going to have to dig deep and figure out how are we going to get through this? How are we going to muster whatever it's going to take inside us to deal with the challenge that showed up and to emerge with something better, something more wise, right? Mm. And so challenge is part of the thing. It's not well, bad luck. Yeah. I, and I loved how um, in your book under acceptance, yeah. you described that because that's a hard thing for people to grasp. They're like, no, I don't want to accept that, um, you know, that this person passed away. And I, I, I love how you put your personal stories in there on top of like your patient stories. And you say in there, acceptance doesn't mean you have to like it. Right. It, right. Because people think that when you accept something and you're, it's like, you're being gifted it. That means you have to like it. Right. A hundred percent. I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, and, and maybe you're referring to one of the patient stories in the book, but I had a patient uh, and, you know, I think I wrote about her, you know, I changed the names obviously to protect the innocent, but um, you know, her mother died on the operating table from a very, very a straightforward and easy procedure. I mean, nobody dies from that procedure. And, you know, when she was wheeled off into the operating room, nobody said their goodbyes and there was no risk. Basically something went wrong and she died. And I had this patient come to see me three years later. And she's still saying, you know, my mother shouldn't have died. It was an easy procedure, like she shouldn't have died. And I said, well, wow. the problem starts there. That's not right. Your mother should have died. How do we know that? Because she did die. So as soon as you're arguing with reality, you're going to lose. And you're not able to move forward from that argument. Because, because Life is exactly how it's showing up. And we have a choice at that point. We either accept it or we argue with it. And I can tell you arguing it is not the right path. This is a, this is a rabbit hole, right? And yeah, yes, you know, we don't want to accept it because it's so painful. But as soon as you don't accept it and you agree to never accept it, you're never going to heal. So, you know, yeah. step one, I accept that my mother died. I don't like it. I don't like it. I'm never going to like it. I'm upset about it. I'm angry about it. I'm in horrible grief about it. Okay. Yes, that's good. Now we have something to work with, but arguing with life, bad strategy. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's yeah. funny. I just did this two days ago. Yeah. So my, when my dad died, you know, I was like, he, he shouldn't have died. They didn't do it right. You know, of course right. I knew better than all of them. And, and I contacted a lawyer, you know, I wanted to fight, but yes. I really didn't have the energy here and there over the years. I've gone back there. I keep going back there yeah. two days ago. It was out of nowhere. I hadn't thought about that. I felt my dad's death was injustice. You know what I mean? Yes. And all of a sudden it pops up. My daughter, I went to pick her up from work and we're in the car. And I was like, God, it just makes me so mad, you know? And she told me and had reminded me, but everything happens, mom, for a reason. It was just his time to go. Of course I know that, but there's still something obviously I haven't dealt with and completely right. let go. 
Right. I mean, you know, the belief there is it was my dad's time to die. Yeah. The blessing. I mean, you can then transition to, but I'm sad about it and being right. sad because I think in our culture and maybe many others, you know, we are not taught to deal with grief. And so yeah. we avoid grief at any cost. So of course the way to avoid grief is to start arguing with life. Well, that shouldn't have happened. And that doctor made a mistake and they shouldn't have done this. And I should have done that. And and then guess what? When you're in your head arguing with the whole thing, you're not grieving because we don't know yeah. how to grieve, right? People are not instructed on how to grieve. You know, I had another patient, he also shows up in the book under the section of death, who's when he was like very young, maybe eight, his grandfather died and he was super close to his grandfather, much closer to his grandfather than he was to either his parents. One day he comes down for breakfast, he's eight years old and his mother said, your grandfather died, you know, his father's father. Don't cry and don't talk about it and don't bring up his name again because your father's sad and we don't want to make it worse. And right. nobody ever mentioned his grandfather again in the house ever. And nobody discussed what death meant or where his grandfather went. So, okay. you know, fast forward 50 years, this man shows up in my office with terrible anxiety about his health. And this is what I was saying to you, that anxiety is usually the result of a problem, not the problem itself. So I said, why are you so anxious about your health? So we started digging, digging, digging. You know, you need a lot of shovels sometime to get down to the bottom. And it turned out that he wasn't actually anxious about his health. He was anxious about dying. And of course, ill health would lead potentially to death. But it really wasn't about his health. It was about death. So I said, why are you so afraid of death? And he relates the story to me about when he's eight years old, his grandfather dies. First of all, he's totally in grief because his grandfather, the guy he loves the most is now gone. But second of all, it's like poof, he vanishes into the ethers with no explanation and there's no allowance of anybody's emotion there. Well, for him, that was the scariest thing ever. And it was never discussed. So of course he's terrified of death. Who wouldn't be terrified of death? You know, our, our society and our culture is so bad at dealing with these topics, which, you know, I'm sure you know this, we all know this, we're all ending up there. This is not just for the unlucky, we are all ending up dead. So yeah. why is it so taboo? Wouldn't it be great to bring this thing out of the closet, nair it out a bit and find a way to get comfortable with it so that we wouldn't have so much anxiety around death, around our health and around all of these subjects? Well, do you think that someone has to have a tad of faith and believe in something bigger than themselves in order to have that acceptance because you don't say that around my father around my brother's death i said it to him once i said dad i think everything happens for you know reason but i also believe that our consciousness goes on my dad was right. so angry that i said that he said i don't believe that if there was a god a god wouldn't have taken my son from me i prayed every night and it didn't work so you know what are your thoughts on that do you think that people have to have that higher power? Good question. I might've said no previously, but I think at the end of the day, I think if you do have some kind of a belief in the afterlife or purpose or something like that, it must soften the blow. And how did I myself come around to this? I had a patient once who I was working with, with her anxiety actually, and it ended up being a fear of death actually, when we got to the bottom of it. And I said to her, well, what are your beliefs? And she said, well, I basically believe that when you die, they dig a six feet hole, they put you in a box and they put dirt on top of you and that's the end of it. And I actually found that I didn't have too much to offer her. I was like, wow, I mean, 
what do you say to that? There's really no comfort then because what's the reason for living then? I mean, you know, for me in my construct of it, and I'm sure I don't have all the details right, but why does it all work for me in the way I, in my paradigm? Because I feel like I'm here to grow and evolve. What's the point of that if I'm just going to be buried in a box at the end? I mean, who cares that I've grown and evolved? It's all for nothing. But if I believe that my soul, my spirit lives on and that in my evolved state, I get to offer something better and that maybe come back again and start with a new level of beingness, well, then that all kind of makes sense. I think if yeah. you believe that there's nothing at the end of this life, it's very hard to have a perspective that makes you feel good about any suffering that you're enduring now. I do think that's a tough one. It is. When I was reading your book, a lot of the eight thinking traps, the one that threw me off that I really enjoyed was regret. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it often happens that we arrive at suffering when things are not going well in our life, right? And when things are not going well, I think it's human nature to go back and say, you know, I shouldn't have done that because I did that. It led to this where I am right now, where I am so miserable. What was wrong with me? Why did I do that? Why did I take that job? Why did I marry that man? Why did I have that other kid? Why did I move to this, this state? Why did I, why did I, oh my God, I really screwed up. You know, I see all of this misery right now can be, you know, back at this point where I took this particular decision and I so regret taking that decision because look where it wound up. And if only I had done the other thing, married that first boyfriend, not taken that job when I was deciding between the two, you know, done this, not done that. If only I had done that, I wouldn't be in this mess now. And you know, I find this to be hilarious because, you know, in typical form, we assume that the path we didn't take that now that we are, you know, regretting would have gone swimmingly well. It would have just been the best decision ever. We would have married that other guy. He would have been amazing. <laughs> he would have been loving and kind and fabulous considering our every need. And we, you know, we would have drifted off into the sunset, never an argument, never a fight. And it would have all been heaven. Where do we make up that crap from? I don't know. But when we imagine that the path we didn't take would have turned out in the best possible way, and we compare where we are now to that, well, of course we don't feel very good. But it's crap. You know, we make up this amazing story about how it could have been. Where's the evidence for that? <laughs> There's none. Oh my gosh, that is so funny. It should be like a comedy skit. I agree. I find it hilarious when people come to me with that. Wow, that's one of the easiest ones for me to debunk because mm -hmm. I'm like, you know, that path you didn't take, you might've been in deeper shit than you're in now. You know, you might've been so much more miserable than you are now. Why do we make up the ultimate best story about that other path? It's, it's so self-torturing. Why do we do that? It is. Well, I'm not actually... <laughs> goes back to, you know, that trigger that I had two days ago. I always said, had I not brought him to the hospital, maybe he would have lived. Yeah. That, I literally took responsibility for his yeah. death for the longest time. But in that trigger, whatever, you know, it triggered me a few days ago, started to talk about it with my daughter. She did bring me back to awareness 
which then brought me back to, oh shoot, I still have some work to do. I do well, know your, that. your daughter sounds very wise. I love the fact that she brings you perspective. That's great. Oh, well, my kids have been my well, greatest teachers. <laughs> yeah. It, you want to know what I think so fascinating about our brain is that I've had that conversation a million times with Shanna, but you know, what happens is we don't receive when we're not ready. Like we yes. truly are listening and we're engaging, but our brains are just not ready for that healing. So like Shanna will tell me things like five years ago and then you know, two years later, I'm like, Shanna, guess what I figured out? She's like, Mandy, I told you that like a million times. <laughs> hey, it's, it's been right. vice well, versa it, too, though. It's been vice yeah. versa. Well, it's always <laughs> easy to help other people with their things. It's our own shit that we have more of a problem yeah. with. You know, but the other thing about regret, which I think is important, not just that we always idealize the path not taken, but that we have to understand that we always do the best we can with what we know in the moment. And how unfair is it five years later to look back at a decision we took then and criticize ourselves for that? That is cruel. That is absolutely cruel. You know, we have to give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. I do the best I can with what I know every day. And of course, in five or 10 or 20 years, maybe it's going to look like not as well as I would do then. Thank God it looks like that. That means I've grown. That means I've evolved. That means I've matured. You know, if I would take every decision 20 years from now that I'm taking today, well, I don't think it says too much for my 20 year self in the future, right? So and I do, do the best I can. What more can anyone do? Do you think the part of me that just got emotional is your actual physical discernment that you haven't let it go? It's that emotional connection that you still have to these triggers, to these regrets, that people ignore their these emotions they don't sit with them and I mean I just felt it on my chest yeah so right? I think emotions I mean, are a great uh, signpost along the way right when we feel disturbed inside whatever the disturbance is whatever the emotion is I think it's like a little yellow flag it's like oh okay what's that you know is there something here for me do I need to look at that for me I would go right to okay you know can we rewire any of those beliefs like I did the best I could with what I knew in the moment. And there's no room for regret when we believe that. The regret yeah, cannot brain knows that. <laughs> yes, exactly. But I'm talking about a subconscious belief, right? Yeah. You know, yeah. or my dad is exactly where he's supposed to be. Or my dad lived the life he was supposed to live and he died when it was the right time for him to die. This was my dad's journey, not my journey. Right. My dad yeah. has, had his own trajectory. Of course, mm -hmm. I'm sad that he left, but let me deal with the sadness yeah. of that and not go into the mental argument about that he shouldn't have died. Well, and we all have these different words for it because a lot of people that we've had on just, they believe in these soul contracts that we, we, we have these agreements that we agree to and we come to this school, like yes. you call it, right? and we live out exactly what we signed up for. And yeah. so Shanna's dad did just that. Yeah, you I know? see it that way too. Yeah. Um, you, you know, I had this vision I wanted to share with you last night because it was so cool. In your book, you talk about stories is one of these eight traps. Right. And then you said very simply, cause you know, like you said, we always like to make things more difficult. Why wouldn't we choose the better story? And I was like, Whoa, right. so I was laying there and I had this vision. I was closing my eyes after I read your book. And I kind of imagined going into like an old blockbuster video 
store, which a lot of people are probably like, what the hell is that? I really know what yellow. you mean. <laughs> I always smelled aged. funny too. Yeah, I just aged myself. You've got this like movie that had come out and you're hearing that there's this new, better version. And I'm walking up and down the aisle and I'm like, well, that one was a classic. Why would I grab this other one, even though I know it's better? And then my mind went into a library. There's like this one book that I was pulling off the shelf. Yeah, I knew this other story was better than this story in this book. Why? Of course, I would grab the other book that I know the story is better. Right. And so it was just it was, I was kind of like literally in my mind walking through it. And I thought, why are we so. Why do we make everything so difficult? Because you're right. You you know, (laughs) it's crazy. I mean, that's, I think the book, Emotional Repatterning, tries to, tries to just say, it's it's really a straightforward and easy read. I think you also said that. But I mean, it just boils it down to the very simple things. You know, we tend to interpret facts and things that happen to us and tell ourselves our story or our version of what happened. And often those stories don't benefit us at all, right? And in fact, just perpetuate the misery, the sadness, the, you know, the bad feelings inside. And it's like, well, is there another way to interpret the same set of facts, right? Because Mm. our stories are not the facts. They are our perception of the facts. You know, I'll give you a good example. You know, I've worked with a lot of people who have suffered abuse as children. And one woman in particular had a very bad story with her dad and it, you know it, it was it was really heartbreaking to listen to it and when we first started working together there was so much um self-criticism there and a lot of abused women end up taking home the point that they were wrong which 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 always just makes me infinitely sad you know they have shame they feel guilt they feel wrong when it obviously it's the adult perpetrator who's completely in the wrong. And as a five-year-old or a 10-year-old, what could you possibly have done in the face of that? But yet so many people take away this terrible story about themselves. And I worked with her to rewrite the story. I mean, the facts are the facts. We're not gonna change what happened, but you can change your interpretation of what happened. And you know, we work to create a new story about the facts, which is, you know, I'm a fucking rock star. You know, I went through all that. I grew up. I'm a very functional person. I have a job. I have a good marriage. I raised some really amazing kids. And yes, the wound is there. Yes, the pain is there. Yes, my inner turmoil still is there. But I survived that. And not only survived that, I thrived, right? I mean, wow, what a different story. Same facts. Right. And how much better would we feel if we told ourselves a better version of the story than what we end up telling ourselves, which is a, not a great story at all. You know, mm-hmm. I use the analogy, uh, which is that it's like you're standing in front of your closet in the morning deciding what to wear. And there's a bunch of shirts there. You know, one is old and it kind of has a stain in the front and it's a little ripped and it's a color that doesn't really, you know, flatter you and it doesn't fit well anymore. And then, you know, on the other side of the closet, there's this really beautiful shirt. You just bought it. You know, it's the perfect color. It's really in style. It's brand new. You just bought it last week on sale, no less. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you have the choice of which shirt you're going to put on today why would you pick the other shirt that you feel crappy in? Why would you Mm -hmm. pick the shirt that you feel beautiful in that, that suits you, that you feel, you feel great in, you know, every day we have a choice. 
what do we want to tell ourselves about what's happening? Mm-hmm. Well, and, and isn't I, that going to make a difference? I love that analogy. And I think that sometimes we have this cord or this attachment to it for different reasons. Sometimes it's because that pain is unfortunately, when we get real honest with ourselves, feels comfortable to sit in. Like sometimes yeah. sitting in that shit, like Ashana and I've talked about, is where for some reason you're finding you're stuck. You're stuck yeah. and you don't know Familiar. how to get out. Familiar. Right. There you yeah. go. Familiar. And, and I think what's really remarkable is that a lot of times you don't even know it's still there. Like I was kind of shocked that I felt so emotional even just a few minutes ago. Still something that, you know, I'm holding on to, which grief is a very heavy thing to carry. And so right. it's probably wise that I start <laughs> working on that. But I wanted to tell you my story with self-love. Mm-hmm. I didn't intentionally go back as far as I did. <laughs> I dug deep, deep, deep. That helped me learn more about myself. There was this generational pattern of women you don't do for themselves, especially in Louisiana. Yeah. And this has been a trait passed down. I mean, they're martyrs for their family and for their children yeah. and men. And so I realized that this was something that I didn't just learn in this life. This was something very, very deeply rooted, which I think a lot of traits are. And you talk about some statistics around that. Like how much have you found that is inherited versus how much is learned? And it can be both, correct? Yeah, well, I mean, for sure, there's it's, it's the, the old nature nurture or what influence the genes play versus the environment, right? Which was where we, we, we started the conversation. But uh, for sure, we have, you know, inherited tendencies. All we need to do is look at our parents and we can see, oh yeah, right? But I think that if we are able to have the awareness to go inside and replace some beliefs that don't serve us, that create negative patterns and negative patterns of thinking, and we can replace those beliefs with positive beliefs that support us and do this work of what I'm calling emotional repatterning. And in the book, I do share techniques and they're pretty easy and easy to learn about actually how to sit with yourself, find the beliefs that you want to believe and upgrade your beliefs uh, using these techniques. I can tell you that it's profound changes because you're no longer working with your 5% conscious mind saying affirmations, setting goals, you know, telling yourself, okay, today I'm going to eat better and I'm going to lose 20 pounds, you know, in the next few weeks and in the next month or whatever, you know, all of a sudden, all those desires and those goals and those affirmations are now supported by what you believe in your subconscious mind. So instead of having one foot on the gas and your conscious mind and the other foot on the brake and the subconscious mind, which effectively means you're going nowhere, you're going to have both feet on the gas. So what you want to do, what you want to accomplish and the supporting subconscious beliefs that help you enact what you're trying to do, mm-hmm. then you actually feel you're not stuck anymore. And what right. I think is the new concept here is the, is the subconscious belief work, because that's the piece that so many of us don't know much about. And that's yeah. really the emerging field right now, I believe in psychology, is to work on this very deep level and change our beliefs. And it's, it's easy and it works. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. I, you know how you said simple, right? Yeah. Of course, it doesn't seem simple from the outside thinking about it, but you know what? All it took really was for me to connect that. Wait a second. I don't live in the 1800s. Right. I, I have the 
amazing opportunities as a woman. It's 2021. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That, that yeah. was it. You know what? I, I was a little shocked. The simplicity of some of these techniques. First of all, I have to ask you about muscle testing. I've never yes. understood it. It's so, right. it's so simple that in my, it's so simple in my mind that it doesn't make sense because my brain right. likes real difficult shit. Let's right. talk about muscle <laughs> testing, this cross brain and knee tapping, because those are very simple techniques. How do they work? Right. So I'll answer the second question first. So the techniques that I share, which are simply to rewire the brain with a new belief, a better belief, basically come from something called Brain Gym, which was developed numerous years ago by a man who was working with kids who were having learning uh, difficulties. And he developed a technique, which is essentially activating both hemispheres of the brain at once, which puts us in a state of deep learning. So the techniques I share are all various amalgamations of many things that I've been trained in, all of which activate both hemispheres of the brain. When we have the right and the left hemispheres of the brain engaged at once, then we are in a state of learning, deep learning. And then it's very easy to teach ourselves a new belief, something that's better than the belief that we have about ourselves. Okay, so that is how it works, essentially simple. We're engaging both hemispheres of the brain and we're teaching ourselves a new belief. We're wiring in a new belief. That new belief, let's say it is, I love myself, replaces the old belief, which is that I don't love myself, right? So it's just teaching something new, engaging both halves of the brain. And there's many, many different ways that you can do that. And I, and I don't go into you know, 100 different ways in the book. I give you the two most straightforward and easy ones. So that's that one. Muscle testing is a whole other kettle of fish. It's actually called applied kinesiology. That's the more technical term. If you've seen chiropractors or, or other uh, alternative health practitioners, sometimes they use muscle testing to decide, okay, is this person deficient in vitamin D or you know, does, uh, does wheat or gluten or dairy work for this person? So muscle testing can be used in a lot of different realms. What it basically is, is an understanding that the body is wise, that the body has a certain intelligence. And the way I use muscle testing in my practice and the way I tried to talk about it in the book is making an analogy to a, to a lie detector test. So basically what that means is this, if I am telling the truth, then the lie detector test, you know, the lie detector test has electrodes that are wired up to me, right? They they read the sweating in my palm, they read my breathing rate, my heart rate. If I tell the truth, there's no stress when I tell the truth, right? There's no stress when I say my name is Lisa, that's true, right? And so nothing about my physiology changes when I say something truthful and the graph in theory is gonna be flat. When I tell a lie, let's say I, may, I say my name is Steven. Well, that's not true, that's a lie. My name is not Steven. When I tell a lie, there's, a little bit of something that changes because there's a stress around lying, right? So if I say to you, my name is Steven and it's a lie and I'm trying to convince you my name is Steven, I have a little stress and that's picked up on the electrodes of a lie detector test, right? So my heart might skip a little bit or I might start sweating a little bit that the electrodes would pick up and the graph starts to make this big swinging motion. Oh, okay, you say she's lying. The point of this analogy is to say that when we say something true, 
It's not stressful to us. And when we say something that we don't believe or something that's a lie, it is stressful. So if you then take that analogy, if you were sitting across from me, let's say I asked you to stretch out your arm and I tried to push down on your arm and you say, my name is Mandy. And I say, be strong. And I tried to push your arm down because you're telling the truth and your name is Mandy, your arm is going to be strong and I'm not going to be able to push it down with my two fingers. You're going to be able to keep it strong because there's no stress when you say the truth. Then if I say, now let's say a lie and you say, okay, my name is Charlie. And I say, be strong with the exact same force and pressure. I'm going to push down. Your arm is going to drop. It is a very weird feeling. Everybody just got in trouble. (laughs) Yeah. Everyone just got in trouble. You're right. Wow. When you say, a lie and I push down with the exact same force, you don't have the strength to resist me because you're, you have a stress because you just lied. This is a little bit woo woo, I know. And this is a little thing that some people might say, okay, that's a little too weird for me. But when you're in my office and I do it and most people like their jaw drop and they say, okay, wait a minute, let's do that again. I wasn't ready. And then, you know, I have them say a lie again and I do it again. The same thing happens. And then if I have a brunette person sitting in front of me and I have her say, I'm a blonde and then, you know, her arm is going to drop because she's not blonde. And then we test these things that we know for a fact to be true or false. And we see, yeah, the muscle test doesn't lie. When we establish that, then we go back and we say, okay, We try to test what your subconscious beliefs are. Now we say, I love myself. Now we're testing your deep belief. I'm not asking your conscious mind about it. If that, if you say, I love myself and I push you down and you don't resist me very well, well, no, you don't believe that. It's not, it's a lie. So that's how we ascertain what's in the subconscious and what we deeply believe and what we deeply don't believe so that we know what to then go to these, some of these techniques to rewire our brain about. Because if I asked you, well, do you love yourself in your deep subconscious? You don't know. I mean, some people say to me, oh, of course I love myself. Yes, but I'm not asking your conscious mind. I don't care what you think. I care what you believe because what we believe is what is running the show. And so that's what we need to get into that underneath place. And I wish it was easier. I wish I could just say to you, well, what do you believe in your subconscious mind? But you don't know because of the definition, it's subconscious. So we have to find a little technique to sneak in the back door on this. And that ends up being muscle testing because your muscle test will not lie. If you believe it, you will be strong. Shanna, get your keys. Come on over, my friend. <laughs> this sounds fun. Absolutely oh, fun. It's a it. blast. Okay. It's a blast. Oh, and you can follow yeah. the directions I give in my book on how to do it. Yeah. It's much easier to do it with somebody else than to do it with yourself. But I do give instructions in the book about how to self muscle test because we're not usually with people when we're doing this work. So there is a way to self muscle test. Some people like to use a pendulum. Some people like to use dowsing rods. There's all kinds of different weird ways to do it. <sighs> The point is just to get into your subconscious and find out what's true for you. Then you have a place to start. And from that starting point, you can use the techniques that I describe in the book, which are very simple and straightforward to start rewiring your brain by installing a better belief and then believing that. And that actually is the culmination of the work. And for all our listeners out there that are scientific um, minded, as we go back to the beginning, 
that science is proving we can change our brains. We, this is something that has been proven, you guys. So I think humans just don't give ourselves enough credit. We give our power to conditions and it's 100%. sad. A lot, so limiting much, a lot of 100%. limiting. 100%. And you know, if I hadn't been doing this work for all these years, I would not be able to speak with the confidence and the authority that I'm saying to you now yeah. This works and it is life-changing, life-changing. I can't tell you how many emails I get from patients and people come in my office and say, I can't believe this. I was in therapy for 10 years. I did this, that, and the other thing. And within two sessions of just uncovering and changing some very deep and old beliefs, I automatically just show up differently because mm -hmm. my glasses have changed. The prescription is clearer. There's less distortion. I see things for what they are. I'm better in myself and I just show up better. It's effortless because I have all these good beliefs about who I am supporting me to be a better person in the world and be more in harmony with who I want to be. It's wow. quite amazing. And you know, it is simple. And that's kind of the funny piece because we all expect that it must be hard and it must take long and we must have to dredge up all this garbage from the past. And no, it's not that. Yeah. One of my favorite exercises to do with my clients is the discernment exercise for them to just sit with themselves, tell themselves a truth and then tell themselves a lie. They're all, it's like that tangible physical experience that they're like, right. holy crap, you're right. I felt horrible as I, you know, lied to myself. But I mean, just imagine we're going around the world lying to ourselves. Can you imagine how bad we feel? We wonder yeah. why we have all this pain. <laughs> right. Well, it's at a deep level. So we're not aware we're doing it. And that's the kind yeah. of sneaky part of it. Right. Because it's hard to fix it. You don't know. Yeah. What is it? All right. Yeah. Everyone needs this book. I'm telling you, <laughs> I, ever, I'm thinking that is like a necessity. Healing Emotional Pain by Rewiring the Brain. Thank you so much. I mean, I, I can't wait to share this book with everybody. Oh, that's great. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure to talk yeah. to you about it. You've asked great questions and it may be very easy to share, to share the pieces in the book that I think are important. Yes. Thank you. Where can our listeners find your book and find you? Well, it's emotionalrepatterning.ca is the website of the book. Mm -hmm. And the book is sold on all the major bookseller sites. Okay. So it should be easy to find, you know, Amazon and chapters and Indigo yep. and, you know, all the, all the various places. So it's, it's pretty easy to find. And it's, you know, it's not long. It's a fairly straightforward and, and easy read. And it's illustrated a lot by my patient stories that make it very relatable because you, you often recognize yourself in there and you say, oh, wow, that's exactly me. And now it's time for Break That Shit Down. I mean, I think it all comes down to, for me, to a real sense of empowerment. You know, I think that we are so much more powerful than we ever have realized. And if we would just grab the things by the horns that are keeping us stuck and suffering and spinning in a circle, look it in the eyes and saying, I'm going to get to the bottom of this. I want to live a life where I'm my most authentic, truest and best self, because I owe it to myself to do that. It's within our power to do. And, and I just want to encourage people to, to take the challenge because the, the rewards are so great. That's what I would say from my heart. That was perfect. Thank you so very much.
You're welcome. You have been wonderful. Thank you for letting us be your students today. (laughs) You're sweet. Yeah, you helped me. Oh, well, I'm happy. I know I often, you know, find myself uh, needing to do this work. You know, I don't think we ever arrive. You know, it's always a work in progress. Well, just send her, send Shanna a bill because you gave her. Thanks for being with us today. We hope you will come back next week. If you like what you hear, don't forget to rate, like, and subscribe. Thank you. We rise to lift you up. Thanks for listening.